Hi, and welcome to The Unconventionalists, the show about what it's really like to start a business. My name is Mark Roost, and today we have, for a second time, the one and only David Baker. By far, one of the number one favorite episodes of everyone I've come across since this episode has been released. If you haven't heard it, make sure to go back and listen to it. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share with you a little bit of an update on the journey. Now, as you've probably noticed, I haven't been as consistent as in the past in terms of releasing the episode on the actual Tuesday, which is the day I'm supposed to. (laughs) Um, But I was 100% focused on delivering my first TEDx talk at TEDx Cardiff last week, which was by far one of the most amazing experiences I've come across. And if you want to check out the behind the scenes videos, you can go over on youtube.com forward slash Mark Roost, or if it's easier, just go to markroost.com forward slash videos. And you'll see I did a behind the scenes with exclusive footage of the day. Now the talk isn't out yet. I will let you know what it is, but it was such a ton of fun. And I'm so grateful for all my friends and family, girlfriend and mum who came up all the way to Cardiff to come and see me talk. And I will do another episode where I'll dedicate a whole um, kind of a class where I'll teach you everything that I've learned from this whole process. Um, there's a story in today's episode I share uh, where I just want to give a, a big shout out to Natalia Loderick, who came to see me speak at TEDx Cardiff and who told me that I was the reason why she was there because she was listening to this podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast, wherever you are in the world, I just want you to know that I'm genuinely so grateful for your time that you spend listening to this and and you know whether it's you meeting me in person and letting me know that you appreciate the podcast or send me a message or a tweet or a Facebook post or what have you know that I am so appreciative and just never take it for granted and it's one of the most amazing experiences to meet someone you've never met before but who knows the message you're trying to put out and who listens to your podcast and that is just a really surreal experience and, and I love it so thank you so much Talia and the other update was I've decided I'm going to be giving out a, a whole bunch of gear for free because I want to. It's going to be a year, almost to the day, that I started my business, that I quit my full-time job in November and started my own business, which feels insane. So I'm going to do a whole video around what I've learned, what are the three things I wished I'd known when I started, and what are the three things I'm going to be focusing on. So that video is going to be coming out on my YouTube channel, but I'm also going to be releasing a little competition where I'm going to be giving away all my old gear, so camera. Uh, video camera, my old MacBook, and my entire GoPro kit. I'm going to be giving all that away because I want to help someone start their own media channel, whether that's podcasting or YouTube, and just want people to broadcast their message. That's what I believe you should be broadcasting your message out into the world. So I will be releasing that on Facebook. So make sure to go on facebook.com forward slash Mark Roost, and you'll see all the details in the next few days very excited about that. So today's guest is David Baker. Now, this is the second round that we've gone. And every single time I sit down with this man, my mind is just totally blown. In our previous episode, we talked about the future of work and started talking about artificial artificial intelligence and how that's going to impact our well-being. And today we got into a bit of a deeper conversation around actually how can we use work for a force for good? And should we be afraid of the future and what the future of work holds for us. Now, it goes without saying that you're going to learn so much for today. So if you want to get your notepad out or if you just want to sit down and relax, that's totally cool. 
But I wanted to say thank you for being around. Thank you for listening. A year to the day I made the biggest decision of my life to quit my job and to go full-time on this podcast and to try and build my business, which feels totally crazy. And I just want to thank every single person that's helped, whether that's through helping me out of my business. And I just want to give a shout out to, to Steph, Ben, Cloud, Cornell and Marta. And whether you've been sharing these episodes or connecting with me, and obviously a massive thank you to my girlfriend, my best friend, my partner in crime, Julie, who's just been an absolute rock and a solid uh, soulmate throughout. That's just absolutely been incredible. And without her, I definitely would not be here and I still wouldn't be able to do this work. So thanks to her. That's it. I give you the one and only David Baker. David, welcome on the show. Mark, thank you. It's great. To, it's great to be back here. Yeah. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. Um, you are officially the first guest that's come back on the Unconventionalist podcast. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. I'm delighted. I'm, de- <laughs> I'm delighted. I hope I live up to the expectations of a second round. We'll see. We'll yeah. See. And I'm recording now, so we're good. good. We're, for the first round, I didn't record, so now <laughs> we are. Uh, no, but I'm really excited to have you back on the show for multiple reasons. The first one is that... The previous episode we did together, The Future of Work, um, has been an all-time fan favorite. And there's just a small anecdote I want to share with you, which is, as you know, I've given a TEDx talk last week. Yeah, you know? congratulations <laughs> on that. You've, you've hit the heights there, Mark, That's I it. think. I think my, I've made it. I've officially made it. Hey, you can uh, stop. I can retire. <laughs> you can retire. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is the last podcast we'll ever do. Um, and so, and I'm sitting in the front row with all the speakers and, and the participants, well, the, the guests start piling in. And then this girl walks by and, and she says, you know, are you Mark Roos? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, you're the reason why I'm here. And I thought, oh, that's bizarre. Okay, cool. But it's surreal. She goes, yeah, I listen to your podcast. And I was like, oh my God. And she start talking about why she enjoyed the podcast. And I said, what's your favorite episode? And she says, my favorite episode was the one with the guy about the future of work, David. I was like, David oh, Baker. Wow. Yeah, wow. Absolutely. My goodness, I'm thrilled. And, and, I'm and, thrilled. But, but that happens over and over again. I get so many people. Why do you think people are so excited about the topic of the future of work? You know, it's a topic, well, we talked about this last time. It's, work is something we hang so much on, mm. isn't it? And when we look at our future, one of the things we're looking for is a certain stability and predictability. We like adventure. Mm. We like creativity. We like, having, we like having a roam through life and seeing what crops up. But to do that, we need a basis mm. and we need a, a secure base to, to explore on. And we usually rely on work to do that. Those of us in work, yeah, you know, we, we hope work will give us that, you know, sustain us through that and lead also, let's face it, to, you know, retirement, a pension mm. in retirement. We have so much we, we bank on. We bank on work for so much that when the future of work seems to be threatened in whatever way, we feel insecure, mm. obviously, and we feel nervous about this. You know, I think you know we spoke about this last time. Actually, <laughs> yeah, this that's is, screwed this me is, up yeah. like two days. I couldn't <laughs> sleep. <laughs> well, in a way, you know, well, I'm sorry you couldn't sleep, and there, you know, there's <laughs> remedies for that. You know, but the I think the, the thing is that this is quite an exciting thing to think about because probably the most exciting things to think about in life are also the scariest mm. things. And actually, we tend to steer away from thinking about them. We tend to be encouraged to steer away from them. If we think about how we grow up into the world of work, we mm. tend to. We're given the idea that there's a particular 
route we need to take. And as long as we stick to that route, everything will be fine. So we do certain O levels or whatever they're called now, GCSEs, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. A levels, AS levels. We do a certain degree. Maybe we do a postgraduate degree. Nice maybe masters, some, PhD. Now, yeah, 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 whatever. That, you know, vocational training. We become yeah. a graduate trainee. This is very yeah. middle class. Yeah, <laughs> route I'm portraying. Sure. You know, but in a way, we're sort of told if you do that and you work hard at it, then work will reward you with mm. probably the security and mm. all the other things as we talked about last time: status, mm. identity, uh, a sense of purpose mm. in the world a sense of you know making a difference to the world maybe and the truth is for a long time work hasn't delivered those things and mm. certainly won't in the future so that's why it's an interesting topic to talk about i mean i'm going to brazil on friday and one of the things i'll be doing there in sao paulo is giving a talk there on mm. the future of work and brazil at the moment is in a very interesting place because about 10 years ago and i'm not exactly sure exactly when that was it was one of the bricks countries brazil russia yeah, india yeah, china yeah. south africa these were going to be the powerhouses of the future of the economy sure. and brazil at that time bid for the olympics bid for the world cup won them both mm. ran them both and now economically brazil is in a terrible mess wow. uh, you know it's in the i'm pretty sure it's in the deepest double dip recession it's ever had certainly the deepest recession it's had since the 1930s and so people there when they're thinking of the future of work in 10 years have been promised something and then it's been pulled away Boom. from them and the psychology of that is very important because people in Brazil are starting to say, well, what about my secure future? What about the secure future mm. of my children, let alone my country? Sure. And it's going to be interesting talking to them about that. And I'm hoping to hear what they say. Because when I was thinking about our last conversation, I must admit it didn't keep me up, a, <laughs> keep me up for two days. But something that did keep me awake a bit was to think about how privileged our conversation was. Mm. And, you know, we touched on this, this idea that, you know, we can be a bit autonomous about work. We can be a bit lackadaisical about where we go. We can welcome some more leisure into our life. Mm. And we did touch on this, that actually there's many people who just really would like a secure job. Mm. And one of the debates we've been having in Britain recently, I think much even more so since we spoke mm. last, is about the gig economy, that actually work mm. may well exist, but it may well exist in an insecure yeah. way. And actually, we need to understand how much of our security we put, that how much of our need for security do we put place on work mm. and whether that'll deliver. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, building a house and thinking, well, the, the secure foundations are the important thing for building a house. Mm -mm. Uh, but if suddenly the, the foundations turn out to be made of sand or, <laughs> you know, moving clay or something, well, you know, those of us homeowners know there's suddenly subs subsidence. And, and in a way, we're doing the same thing with work, actually. We've been kind of promised that work hard, follow a certain route, be predictable, if you like, provide security. But it's changing. And that's changing mm. and has changed, mm. you know. Someone listening to this who's maybe 19 has probably never experienced the security of work. Mm. But this is surely... I'm no expert, but looking at the history of the different, you know, industrial revolutions we've been through, this isn't the first time that the face of work is changing, and where and where and where people are afraid of what what's about to happen. No, certainly not. Although actually, it's the first time it's changed in such a rapid, a rapid yeah. and enormous way. I mean, mm. basically, it's probably the second time it's changed. Let's mm -hmm. face it. If you look in the history of work, until about 1750 in the West, at any rate. Work was almost identical for thousands of years. Mm. You know, there's n very little economic growth mm. in Western civilization till about mm. the, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And the work was a very stable thing. Mm. You know, if you look at the pattern of work 2,000, 1,000 years ago or something, you know, you, you didn't really choose your job. You just did the same job that your dad <laughs> did or your mum sure. did. You know, you... Bakers, you, butchers, candle makers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you didn't really expect there to be 
a kind of a, a wonderful sense of achievement from work or purpose yeah. from work. And then the Industrial Revolution came along and then in a very negative way threw all of the, this up in the air. Machines replaced people and people had to become parts of factories. So in a way, had to become machines themselves mm. or cogs in machines. We invented things like, for example, the shift system or the five-day week or the eight-hour day or whatever because factories had to work in this mechanical, literally mechanical, mm. but also metaphorically mechanical way. And so whereas you know, somebody who was doing a manual job uh, in 1650 would have probably chosen their hours. We would have called them probably a, a, a portfolio worker or a self-employed <laughs> worker or a digital nomad or something the original like that. Hipsters. Yeah, the original hipsters. <laughs> they worked a lot when there was work and they didn't work at all when there wasn't work and, mm. they, and that included during the day and during the week. So you, you find records from Elizabethan England, for example, from the 1550s or 1600 or so of people who sometimes are waking up in the middle of the night to carry on doing work wow. and at other times have just not got much to do until the harvest comes in mm. in the autumn and that was the natural way of work now that work didn't provide any social mobility or hardly any social mobility but it provided a sort of lowish level security and what happened in the industrial revolution was all that security got thrown away got thrown up in the air and instead workers were were committed to a bigger project than their own work, if you like, which is the project of the, the production of the factory. Mm. Now, that was caused an enormous upheaval. And, you know, there's plenty of good literature that we read about, uh, you know, the, the, the downsides of the Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. as well as the upsides. Mm -hmm. You know, we discovered pollution. Sure. We discovered enormous urban poverty, for example. All those sort of things emerged. But then we came out the other end. And generally, we've made an industrial world, which for at least some of us, has been a hugely productive mm. world. And certainly standards of living have risen from, from 1750 to now in an unimaginable way for the people who lived before mm. them. Now, this revolution we're going through, which I'm never sure we're meant to call it the second or the third or the fourth <laughs> industrial revolution, but the digital revolution, the one we, yeah. which has kind of come back really from uh, three things. I think the invention of the internet, the connectivity mm -hmm. that gives us, the huge advance in computing power, mm. and... Now I've said three things and I can't think of the third artificial thing. Artificial intelligence? Uh, and, uh, yes, exactly. Thank you. And artificial intelligence, machine learning, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Then what that's given us actually is, a, is a, another seismic shift in the way that world works, but one that's happening much more rapidly than the Industrial Revolution. Hmm. And so many people are starting to say, actually, we're starting to see the casualties of this, or we're starting to worry about, or in your case, not sleep for two days <laughs> about, the future of work because we're not quite sure how we might not repeat the casualties of well, the last time or the problems of the last time. Yeah, I mean, let, let me, you know, a few things why I didn't sleep is when you basically mentioned that, uh, you know, our, our, our the next generation, the ki next kids' generation are basically going to be manufacturing their drugs. You know, it was like, yeah. I was thinking about, oh my God, that's just such a paradigm shift about thinking they're no longer going to have to go in the streets and go and, you know, sell or buy drugs, but now they can just download a PDF of some dodgy website, get some, I don't know, molecules, whatever you need to do to do, a PD, you know, an approved drug, and then stop making their own drugs. So, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think? Debatable. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Let me let me let me let me play both sides. <laughs> the good side is that hopefully. So this is it. Wait, by the way, are we talking about if it's legalized and if it's controlled or if it's? Well, I was going to ask you that. You brought up drugs. So yeah, you yeah, know yeah. That, yeah. So. Well, okay. So let's <clears> say. Let's say it's legalized, and now you can basically Deliveroo, right? The same way that you have Deliveroo for for food and so forth. Now you could you could order on demand drugs. Um, so maybe there'll be a, a stop to this whole black market and the whole traffic of drugs and the human human lives that gets involved in that, and just you know deaths and all this stuff and people who get um, brought into that whole industry. So maybe that maybe that's a good thing. 
the, the, well, I think what three freaks me out is the idea of how easy it's become. It's going to become, well, at least from that, from that sort of, you know, the angle. It's like how there will literally be zero barriers of entry to experiment with drugs and so forth. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that why we think that's a bad thing when we reduce barriers. That mm. society is based on the idea of boundaries, if you like. Yeah. You know, that certain things are allowed, certain things are not allowed. Certain yeah. things are allowed to adults, not to children. Certain things are allowed, uh, let's face it, sometimes to men and not to women, sure. even in our sure. society here in Britain. Yeah. And that tends to be the mar- those tend to be the markers of society, what's allowed. Mary Douglas, you know, the anthropologist, talked wonderfully about what she called, I think it was matter out of place, about mm. the idea of taboo, mm. how societies mark themselves by what's allowed and what's not. Now, we're having a conversation here where at the moment we live in a world where recreational drug use, despite its polite name, <laughs> is, not, is not allowed. Yeah. And this pushes people who do do recreational drugs yeah. into the criminal sector, yeah. the, the not allowed sector of society. Sure. And technology has often enabled something to happen that previously society didn't really want to happen. Mm. Uh, one of the things that the Industrial Revolution brought about ultimately was the trades union movement. The idea of actually of worker power was enormously enhanced by the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. because people could gather, gather together in one place and they could also mass withdraw their labor. This is interesting, something that's enormously challenged by the Digital Revolution now. And we've talked about Deliveroo by the yeah. gig economy and yeah. you know, what's happening there. So when you look at the future and say, well, maybe kids can order their own drugs and some <laughs> delivery driver will, will deliver it. That, that already exists. That is, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you can already like. Well, we don't want we don't want to malign no, Deliveroo. Course. I mean, you know, presumably it's not them who's delivering them, but you know, m- maybe you no, can no, no. order and they get arrived. But, but the thing is, uh, you have to say, well, what would the advantage of that be? So the advantage is they wouldn't be dealing with criminals. Yeah. Uh, or they wouldn't be dealing at least directly with criminals. They wouldn't have to go onto a street and sure. actually deal directly with criminals, even if it's not legalized. This yeah. would be a much more effective way. Now, l- let's face it. This is actually what is already happening with the dark web. That mm. many people. Uh, in who are cool enough to understand how to get onto the dark web, yeah, uh, really are. I, my understanding is buying their drugs much more from there than they are from street. Yeah, I had dealers, a friend yeah. that was that was buying his weed or whatever he was buying going through that. And was yeah. it good? Was his experience good? He said it was crazy. He said he said it was insane. It was. He said like the. I mean, this is this is years ago. So I don't know how much has evolved or how much has changed. But I remember at least five years ago when he basically had got onto. Um, is it dark web is that what it's yeah, called? The yeah. Web, yeah, yeah, the dark web. And he said <coughs> it was insane the access of, the access of stuff you have of mm. information and people and w- how you can trade and communicate about certain stuff. It was pretty not well scary or or amazing depending on on how you you see it. Well, is it interesting? We keep on using this. Is it scary? Mm. Is it amazing? You yeah. know, is the future of work terrifying or is uh, is an opportunity? You know, I mean, we should explain what the dark web is yeah. at this point. You yeah. know, this is this is a web part of the World Wide Web, which is generally invisible to those of us normally using Chrome or mm. Safari or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you have to download a browser, I think, called Tor. And basically, it's a kind of encrypted web. So it's very hard, if not impossible, on the dark web to discover the real identity of anyone you're dealing with, whether as a seller or a buyer. And as a result, quite a lot of illegal things are bought and sold mm. on the dark web. Mm. Now, my understanding is that drugs on the dark web are sold in a very interesting way, which is almost exactly like eBay or Amazon, that <laughs> suppliers get reviews, they get star ratings, that people choose according to the the, the reputation of the, yeah. the product and the reputation of the supplier. And, and, and you might say, well, good on them. You know, it, that may be it's the way around. It's self-regulated. It's self-regulated. The, also, it removes those people from going out on the streets and meeting someone who may well have a gun. The blockchain of drugs it, online. It's exactly the blockchain. <laughs> and, and actually, that's a very interesting 
effect of the blockchain or it's a very interesting effect of technology yeah. I mean, technological innovation innovation when we invented the blockchain we didn't imagine that people might get higher quality drugs as a result delivered to their homes and in a way this is why the future of work is fascinating as well because we we talked about this a little bit last time we can't really imagine where these innovations in work no. are going to take us no. and they may take us in very unexpected places we talked last time a lot i think about what would we do with our leisure time yeah for example and all we can do at the moment is try and picture our leisure time at the moment and go well, will it be like that? Will it be a bit more mm. like that? Will, mm. will there be a five-day weekend and a two-day working week <laughs> or something like that? But actually, what technological innovation shows us again and again and again is we can't really imagine what that might be. But instead, we just need to be ready for what that might be. And that's a different state of being. And to be honest, it's probably one that's friendlier to sleep. Yeah. Because you might say, I don't need to really understand what's going to happen. But I do need to look inside myself and say, what skills do I have to deal with new situations when they mm. arise. So if my kids suddenly are ordering, you know, deliverable drugs or actually customizable drugs, I think you said, over the web and they're arriving, what do I do as a parent? What do I do as a, as a member of society about that fact rather than worrying about whether or not that will happen? And this, this puts the problem yeah. back down here now oh. into the present day. We sort of say, what is my ability to adapt? What is my ability to respond mm. when things happen? I mean, last time we met... Uh, we talked about, for example, how technology has developed jobs which were unimaginable sure. 25 or 30 sure. years ago. You know, one of them is social media. I think yeah. we talked about social media yeah, marketing yeah, yeah, consultants yeah, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> now, that was unimaginable in so many ways because we hadn't even invented the World Wide Web. So yeah. we couldn't have imagined social media. So we can't imagine a consultant yeah. working in social media. Now, presumably, technologies, AI, uh, machine learning, maybe quantum computing, maybe developments in the connectivity of the web, maybe the 3D printing of drugs, who knows, mm. will lead us to work and jobs and activities, which again, we can't imagine. So my feeling is, let's chill for a little bit. And actually, we can, we can just say, so long as I'm, I've got my eyes open and I'm looking for the possibilities there, both positive and negative, mm. the opportunities and the challenges of whatever happens, then I'll be ready. But if I say I really need to know what the future will look like, then I think... You know, I'm on hiding for nothing. Good luck. You know, I will absolutely be awake all night but because we can't. Let, let me ask you a question, David Baker. Are you afraid of the future? A little. I am. I think I'm afraid that the society I live in won't be ready for the technological or work future mm. that arrives. Mm. By which I mean, not only will I, as an old man, I'm a bit worried about whether I'll have enough of a pension or something like that. Will I be, will I be able to s just subsist in that society? But also, what will happen when we have too many people after too few jobs, which I'm pretty sure is going to happen? What will happen to the distribution of wealth in our societies? What will happen when people realize there's going to be a large number of people who, in effect, are hungry, and a very, very small number of people who are in effect, billionaires. Now, we're starting to see this already. I, the, in Silicon Valley, where I was last year, a lot of people are investing in you know, underground nuclear bunkers and building condominium what? blocks. I mean, this is an important thing to I look heard, into. Sorry, I heard, yeah. have you heard about the New Zealand? Yeah, and people are going to New Zealand, yes. exactly, yeah. So in a way, there's a kind of flight of the 1%, or to be honest, probably the 0.1% from Silicon Valley, anticipating a social uprising. Now... I'll put my cards on the table here. I think this is obnoxious. 
I think actually the 0.1% should be applying themselves and their fine brains and their huge business success to working out why a large number of people might want to rise up and changing the conditions of those people so they don't rise up. Instead, mm. what they're doing is they're buying underground apartments. And, you know, if you look, at, if you look online at this, is they're extraordinary. You can see the plans and the, the CAD drawings, just like any development, you know. And these are underground condo blocks, so incredible luxury. Or buying mm. property in New Zealand because they think the uprising won't get near mm. New Zealand. Now, this sounds like science fiction, mm. but it's kind of science fact already. I, I think we talked about this last time. Mm. I was in San Francisco last year. Uh, spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley and in the city of San Francisco. And in Silicon Valley, there's an astonishing concentration of wealth. As we know, Mark Zuckerberg, sure. Peter Thiel, you know, the, these are the... the but, but it's ridiculously expensive. And when you go to San Francisco, you talk to people who live there, they're all like sharing, there's six of them in one room. Right. Or it's, it's ridiculous. The, the real estate is just crazy. Well, actually, it makes a very interesting point that the real beneficiaries of technological advance are not particularly technologists or us, they're real estate owners. Yeah. That actually, yeah, price yeah. goes with scarcity. And totally. suddenly, real estate became very scarce in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and in San Francisco, and so the price has gone up. So really, actually, the real Mark Zuckerbergs are not particularly Mark Zuckerberg. They're actually so-and-so who owns a block of flats yeah. in, in San Francisco. But what I was going to say, mm. at the same time in San Francisco, there are, and I checked this number, 6,800-ish people sleeping on the streets of San Francisco. You notice it. Yeah. You notice Everywhere. it, actually. You yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I don't, I, especially when you do the, the switch from Los Angeles... LA to San Francisco, it's a very different, uh, I mean, it just depends where you're hanging out, but I remember one of the first things I noticed, like, oh, there are way more, and there's uh, way more homeless people, and there's, a, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's this legend that they say that uh, a bunch of um, states in the Midwest would put homeless people on a train on a one-way ticket to San Francisco? Well, Have you heard about this? Yes, people say this. People also say the other way around, actually, that San Francisco invited those people to ah. the city. Depending, Because I asked people in Silicon Valley a lot about the homeless people in San Francisco because, you know, you go to Silicon Valley and reasonably enough, they're always going, they're always going something like, we're going to change the world. Is you know, that Ayanapa area? Is that is that the, what, what is it called? The... No, Ayanapa is in Cyprus, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> isn't that the, you've yeah, been raving yeah, yeah. too much recently. <laughs> no. Uh, no, what is the name of the place where Silicon Valley is actually... Base isn't there like a name of a town? Uh, yes, it's Palo Alto. Palo Alto, Palo Alto there you yeah. go. Palo Alto. As around there. Lexic, it yeah, sounds that's almost fine. Like there we go. <laughs> Ayanapa Palo Alto. I mean, you know, Ayanapa Palo Alto. Palo Alto, Cupertino. You know, <laughs> yeah, those, pla yeah. those places around there. Yeah, you yeah. go there and you absolutely notice a certain quality of life. You know, there's a there's a cleanness about the roads. There's expensive things in the shops. There are high end cars. There are nice safe neighborhoods, quiet, safe neighborhoods. You go to the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. That's example, where I was, yeah. And you see a lot of people, often with mental health problems, yeah. sleeping on the streets. So when I was in Silicon Valley, I asked almost everyone I met about, you know, you say you're trying to change the world. How do you change the world so there are not homeless people sleeping on the streets of San Francisco? That's one hour away from all this yeah. wealth. And almost everyone brushed off the yeah, question. Yeah. And said something like, well, that's the fault of the city. That's the problem. You know, that was the fault maybe those states who sent them. But yeah. they would usually say that San Francisco encouraged people to come to the city through welfare, through whatever it might be, mm. homelessness projects. Mm. And therefore, the city, it's the city's fault and the city's got to sort it out. Now, this is, goes against, if you like, the spoken values of Silicon Valley, which is we're going to go out there and use our brains to change the world for the better. Elon Musk, all that kind of stuff, mm. kind of we're going to get uh, a permanent human settlement on Mars as a backup plan yeah, well, for humanity. Yeah, but, but this is the interesting thing, you see, because if you look at the permanent human settlement on Mars as a backup for humanity, will it be the same people who right now are going to New Zealand or who yeah. right now are building Or will it be the homeless people in San Francisco? It almost certainly won't be the homeless people yeah, in yeah. San Francisco. Like, And the very interesting ethical questions come like even beyond Mars, 
who gets to go to New Zealand? Who gets to go? I, I'm not sure we spoke about this last time, but Peter Thiel, the VC investor in San Francisco, in uh, Silicon Valley, the guy who he was one of the founders of PayPal, for example, and Skype, I think, an early investor in Skype. And uh, he is developing these floating islands in the uh, international waters. The, the idea that we can build artificial, huge artificial islands in international waters, which, because they're in international waters, are away from national laws. So away from government, away from any regular, away from government. Now, he says he's doing this. He has a nice phrase. He wants to set up a startup sector for government. He says government and politics is broken. We need to find a way of starting all over again and working out the best way to do government. So his vision is of these big floating islands, which are going to be made up of if you like jigsaw pieces, hexagons or squares, which link together. Uh, each one will probably house maybe about 30, 40 people. And they're, dis they're detachable. So that if you don't like the government on your island, you can float away and join <laughs> another island. And his idea that through trial and error like this, <laughs> good governance will arise. Now, we're laughing. And I must admit, I'm laughing too. And th this, let's face it, this is not a vision, by the way. This, let's, we need to face up to that. This is actually happening. The prototype is being built at the moment by a Dutch engineering company. There's tons of money in Silicon Valley behind this idea. They will certainly have an island, probably not in international waters, but close to some shoreline in the next 10 years or so. And, so, and do you think that's right? Personally, I think it's wrong. The reason I think it's wrong is not because I think government doesn't need some revision and a startup sector to make it better, but because it seems to me that we're sort of saying, we've got a problem so I'm going to step away from it rather than we've got a problem. So I want to engage with it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I was recently in Salvador in Brazil. I was mm. making a radio program about homeless kids on the streets of Salvador. Um, the reason I was doing that is because 80 years ago, a, a writer called Jorge Amado, a Brazilian writer, wrote a very good book about kids, homeless kids in Salvador. He called it Captains of the Sands. I'd very much recommend it as a good novel. And they're, they're a gang of kids who live in an abandoned warehouse and, you know, they roam around the streets pickpocketing, begging for food, hustling a little bit, and that's how they survive. And uh, unfortunately, there are still, 80 years on, gangs of kids in Salvador. And you mentioned that's a bit like Oliver Twist and Fagin's Bang. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they live in the book. They live a bit like Fagin's gang, but without Fagin. They don't have an adult looking after mm. them. It's about how they look after each other, how that, that family unit emerges. Anyway, I went back mm. there last, uh, last month, actually, uh, for Radio 4, and made a program about kids who are nowadays living on the streets mm. of Salvador. Now, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of kids and adolescents living on the streets of Brazil, completely rough, and they're pretty in a pretty dejected state, partly because the state itself, the country itself, doesn't really have the resources or the programs to lift them out mm. of that poverty mm. into some sort of welfare system, but also partly because almost all of them are engaged with the drugs gangs, we talked about drugs before, and the, with the intense criminality of those drugs gangs. So their lives are surrounded by drugs and guns. And we met one kid, and there are plenty, who himself had used a gun and himself had killed someone when he was 11. How old was he? He was 17 now, so yeah, he yeah. was 11 when he shot someone. Yeah. And when I spoke to, if you like, richer Brazilians about this, many of them friends of mine, many of the people I respect, they showed sympathy but then kind of helplessness it just seemed to be like it's normal like it, this no, is what it happens 
like it's too big a problem to solve. Mm. It, it's almost impossible to see how Brazil could solve this problem. Can I just, I just want to pause you just for a second. How was it for you when you heard that kid, that teenager tell you that story? Because I know we're, t- we're saying it as part of this bigger mm. conversation, but I just want to sort of humanize more that moment for you around like, oh, you're there, you're having this chat and then suddenly you hear this kid, I'm 11, I've shot someone. Well, you know what? The, it gave me two days of sleepless nights, really, mm. actually, that, one of one was when I met the kid. He was he was actually in a government program by okay. then, so partly I was more hopeful for him mm-hmm. because he was now going back to school mm-hmm. and he was being looked after by social workers. Mm-hmm. But when I interviewed him, he, it was like talking to somebody who was dead inside. His eyes were glassy. Mm. He had an incredibly gruff, low voice, very monosyllabic, very mm. hesitant. He actually sounds like an old man if you hear the program he sounds like an old man speaking it's impossible to think that he's 17 years Mm. old but he's almost like he's lived a whole life already and i didn't know he'd killed someone i asked him quite casually you know he was talking about the gangs and i said did you find work with the gangs and he said yeah you know i found trafficking stealing and then he sort of paused and then went homicidio in portuguese means killing and the truth is i was so shocked that I did what every journalist is not meant to do. I didn't even follow that up. I was so, yeah. I was so, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And I was looking to the eyes of a 17 year old boy mm. who had killed. And I realized actually we don't really come into contact with someone, people like that very yeah. often. We do often on the news, see them sure. or hear about them in the paper or sure. read about them in policy documents or whatever. And when I met him, I realized that the real killing that had happened in his life, apart from the person he'd killed was that he himself had been killed by mm. the deprivation that he lived. There really, when, we was, when initially we were speaking, there was really not a really ali- an alive person inside him. Yeah. Mm. What then happened was, as the interview carried on, I, un- I sort of changed tack and I asked him to talk about how he saw the future and suddenly he started to light up. And there was a very wonderful moment where his eyes, you know, he, his eyes just looked at me much more directly and much more sparkly. And I asked him to take us on a tour of this government shelter where he was working. And suddenly he was like a thrilled 17-year-old. And it was such a joy. It was a real compliment to the work of those social workers that he, he was excited to show me the bedrooms where they slept. There was, a, there was a kitchen where people were handing out ice cream. He introduced me to his mates. There was a football pitch in the middle. I was terrified he was going to ask me to play, play football, football because I, I, you know, a ball comes towards me. I'm running a mile. <laughs> and in Brazil, you can't do that. So you just have to avoid the situation. You know. um, and he lit up. And, that, and so I was very optimistic mm. for him. I was much less optimistic about uh, another guy I met in sleeping in one of the squares of Salvador who was 20 by this stage, who was unbelievably, actually that's patronizing to say, who was incredibly bright and incredibly curious about the world and incredibly well read. He'd read the book, Captains of the Sands, for example. Um, He understood his situation. He'd been on the streets for about six years by this stage. And I asked him in one of the interviews we did, I said, you know, how do you see your future? And he said, I really want to be a marine biologist. I'm, I'm, I love animals. You know, Salvador's on the sea. He's often in the sea. I said, I love the animals in the sea. I, he had a lovely phrase. He said, I, I sometimes fly in my thoughts. In mm. my thoughts, I fly. Mm. I'm going to do a diploma. I'm going to become a marine biologist. Mm. You'll see. Mm. And when we were leaving that interview, I asked one of the social workers who was with us what hopes this guy had to do that. And... The guy said to me something very depressing. He said, I, uh, he, he literally went, I need to tell you something really real, mate. He hasn't a hope in hell. 
someone who's been on the streets that long. He was 20, a bright guy of 20. There's no way in the Brazilian system for him to be picked up. It's like again. the caste system in, in India. I don't know if you know, mm. the, the whole kind of. It feels like yeah, it. Yeah, the, the way that you talk. Um, there's, you know, you talk, you you, talk, you touched upon it briefly about um, this uprising of people that's coming, you know, and that's why people are protecting themselves. Yesterday, the French elections took place. Mm. And for the first time in its history, none of the major left or right parties were represented in the second round. So mm. for those who don't understand, in France, it's a bit of a different system than in the UK or the US. Those are the two predominant systems I know of, so I can't speak about the rest of the world. But effectively, you vote for the candidate that you want. There's about eight different candidates that present themselves. And then, in theory, if no one's got the majority, as in over 50%, there's a second round of the two people who got the most percentage mm. of votes. And then the whole nation goes back and votes for those two people. Now, the incredible thing is that 50% have voted for two extreme parties, if you put the numbers down, Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, depending on what you play for, but Jean-Luc Mélenchon is quite far left, and Marine Le Pen is definitely far right. Um, and we're living in this really interesting time, and it's both, for me, very scary to think that 21% of French people would vote for what I believe is to more effectively as a fascist system, but that's my, that's my personal belief. Um, and we also got on the other side, we've got about 19% who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So there's a real uprising that's happening. And then you've got um, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, who's center, previously the economics um, minister under François Hollande, who quit to, to start his own central party. And those are the, the two candidates now. He's 39. He's the youngest potential elected president we'll ever had. Doesn't have that much. He's never been elected before. And his, his plans, people say, well, you know, we're not really quite sure. Um, he's the one that gets my vote, uh, Macron. He's the one that I was backing. And I'm just thinking, there's something happening. I mean, obviously, I'm not making, I'm not, you know, this is not new. But the populist wave that's happening through Brexit, I consider that, Donald Trump, and then now Marine Le Pen, um, what can we do, David? <laughs> What's the <laughs> oh, I, I didn't realize you were going to ask me what can we do. I just like, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, what do you think? But yeah, I'm just, I'm well, just... Let's do what do we think and what, do we, what can we do? So what do we think? You know what? Um, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, that politics and government, as Peter Thiel is saying, and I'm no fan of Peter Thiel, are kind of broken. or certainly haven't delivered what they promised. We had a period where they were delivering what they were promising, and this is let's face it, we're talking about the developing, world, the developed world here. You yeah. know, if you go to if you go to Brazil, where they haven't, they've got a bonkers government which is all falling apart. They probably would quite like our old politics, the ones we're rejecting. Is it right is now. it so? Can we sign up? Just sorry to Is it hard for you to spend that much time in Brazil and come back in the West and have conversations? With even people like me or people like who, so we sort of talk. Oh, we know we're complaining about the situation, or whatever. And then you go, actually, guys, you don't realize how the world actually lives, you know, and how privileged we are. Is there, is there something that's harder? For yeah, you? you know what? It's hard. I, I, I try. I really try to catch my sense of privilege. Sometimes it's really easy for me, us, people like us, not to understand how privileged we are and how comfortable we are. Mm. I don't mean only in the world, but even within Britain. Mm. Um, I think we talked last time about access to money for example and i mentioned a friend of mine a friend, who, yeah. who, who, who could you know, struggle he, to get 50 pounds yeah 20, 20, 20 yeah. you know if, he's, if you're short of 20 quid he can, can't really get hold of 20 quid and in a way that's when you asked me a while ago am i worried about the future that's the kind of future i'm worried about because it's about the distribution of wealth mm. really now one thing that work does is redistribute wealth it's we we basically made a mechanism for the redistribution of wealth if you if you think about it in simple terms 
let's take it on the national level. A country together does some stuff, sells stuff and makes money. Mm. And then the country, or in our case, maybe the European Union or in, you know, the United States in the United States, but the unit, if you like, has got quite a lot of control about how the, pr- the income from that stuff that has been made and sold gets distributed around the group. So it's worth thinking about this on a tiny level. You know, if four people worked together to set up a cafe, for example, uh, and we're working kind of equally at it, you might say, well, they should divide the profits of the cafe equally between them. Um, if three of them were working very hard and one of the person wasn't working very much, some people might say that that person who wasn't working very much shouldn't, should only get a little bit of the profits. Mm-hmm. But other people might say, no, no, everyone's in it together. There might be quite good reasons why they're not working very much, that mm-hmm. person. And actually, it should be divided, div- divided up for mm-hmm four ways anyway. Anyway, this is exactly the same debate we have in on a national level. You know, there are some people who are working very hard and earning a lot of money, and there are other people who are working very hard and not earning a lot of money, and mm. there are quite a lot of people who are not working at all. And the way we create our states is by making decisions about how we divvy up the national income, if you like, the national mm. wealth between those people. Mm. So when I come back from Brazil, I kind of get a reminder that there are plenty of people in Brazil living in, in a level of poverty and let's face it, insecurity and violence, which would be very hard to find anywhere in Britain. But there are plenty of people living in Britain who are living in a, a, a place of insecurity and poverty, for example. Have you seen I, Daniel Blake? I can't bring myself to go see I, Daniel Blake because I know it will depress me so yeah, much. But I that's saw, what I mean about it. it T- tell me about it. Go. No, I, I, since we spoke, um, I saw it. And um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't... Everyone says this, but you know, I was in tears. It was. It's. It's a very... It's a, it's. I think it's a beautiful film. It's a really hard film, but um, a really random thing. It's for example, I never realized that sanitary towels was something that people don't donate a lot, and so in these food bank centers or these help centers, they are don't have that many sanitary towels to give to women and mothers and so forth who need them. And well, so wait, we have we charge VAT on sanitary towels in this country. <laughs> we. We have a rule that we do not charge VAT on essentials, so food you take home, even books, and yet we charge VAT on sanitary towels in really? this country. That's a matter of public policy here. Wow. We don't feel it's an essential. Wow. That is insane. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, if you feel like you can't get yourself around to watch it, but I, I recommend it because it's, it, for me, it was a real shock to see Actually, this is this is a reality for way more people than we believe or what we think. And I just want to bring that back for, to a point we said previously. I gave a talk one day where I was making fun about the fact that we all say we want to make an impact, but when was the last time did you stop and had a chat with someone on the street? Thank you. Okay, so I was going to bounce the question back to you. about. Okay, so you saw I, Daniel Blake, and now what mm. do you do, Mark? Yeah. Well, nothing. The only thing I did was to feel bad about it. Um, and then... So you, it's really interesting. So a point you made about homeless people in San Francisco and talking mm. about it, and people go like, no, no, I want to change the world. Mm. You know what you're talking about? You know, David, I'm going to change the world. It's like, yeah, but what are you doing about mm. your fellow kin a um, hundred meters away from you that's begging? And I'm fascinated by this concept because I notice it in me about this awkwardness when I'm around someone who's begging or someone's in the street. I don't know how to interact with mm. them. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, Am I supposed to say, hi, how are you, stop, what are you doing here, how did you get here, am I going to get emotionally involved, am I going to have to give more money than I want to, like, there was a point in my life, up until recently, where every time I'd walk by and someone begging, I felt guilty if I didn't give money, and so I'd, I'd give a pound, or I'd give whatever I had on me, some coins, and I realized, like, that's coming from a place of guilt, as opposed to from a place of wanting to help, 
and I was I was brought up with a mum. She, so she's Christian, but she would every time we'd come out of the supermarket, there'd be someone outside begging or something like that. She would never give him money, but she'd always get him food because she said, "I don't want to give him money. He's going to buy alcohol, and I don't want him to get drunk." But she would go, "What do you want? Do you want some like a sandwich, some tuna, some baguette?" And so she, I was brought up with that, where she would always give and um, and so forth. And yet, I find myself to be someone rem- relatively open-minded. I try and be kind and do a good deed. I like try and support people when they go run in the London Marathon races. But yet, I find myself incredibly um, distraught, and I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to react when I'm in when I'm in contact or when I'm speaking with someone who lives on the streets. And I'm ashamed of it. I am. I'm embarrassed by the fact that why am I why am I awkward? Seeing someone on the street that's asking me, do you have some change, mate? Whereas I go into, I don't know, some random party that I don't know, and I'm going to have a strike of conversation. It's very interesting what you brought up. I mean, why are we awkward in those situations? Um, I, put, I need to put my cards on the table. Actually, I'm not so awkward in those situations anymore because I wanted to break through that awkwardness. Uh, and what I did was I went to do for quite a few years. I was a volunteer for an organization called St. Mungers, which runs hostels for homeless people people who yeah. have been sleeping on the streets and and as a result i i got to know more people who had been homeless and discovered they're exactly like you and me and they're human beings they're exactly like the strangers at the party mm. and i suspect in my case i can't speak for you mark but i suspect in my case the awkwardness came from a, a feeling of Guilt? guilty privilege yeah. you know and if you like by interacting with people who are less well off i'm highlighting my own discomfort mm. about the comfort I have. Now, the truth is I probably took this completely the other way and because I was going to say to you, if you carry on giving pounds to everyone you see in the streets, you'll be on the streets because <laughs> you've run out of pounds. <laughs> you know? And in a way, that's the insanity of that kind, that, that kind yeah. of position that we have. So, something that inspired me hugely was a, a book by Peter Singer called The Life That You Can Sa- The Life You Can Save. I, did you know this book? No. So, Peter Singer is a, I think he's an Australian philosopher who now works at UC Berkeley, I think. Um, and, He's best known for having spent most of his life worrying about animal rights. And hmm. he's a very controversial philosopher. So he says quite interesting things. He says primates, for example, are almost humans. And we should absolutely not operate on them or do animal testing on them. Mm. He says that would be very much like how the white world viewed black Africans during mm. the time of slavery, for example. Um, and recently he's been thinking about a different thing which is actually about charity or what we might call charity Mm. or aid or assistance and he wrote a book called the life you can save and if you let me let me tell you how he opens the book he he says imagine you're going to work uh on the first day of a new job and you're very excited you've got up early in the morning you've had your hair cut you've got new suit or a new dress or whatever you're got some new shoes you're you're striding off for your first day to be perfectly on time for your your new job and everything and in the distance uh, there's a pond, and he sees, you see in the pond, uh, there's a kid playing in the water. And as you get close to the pond, you realize the kid's not playing, the, the kid's actually in trouble. It's like a toddler, maybe two or three years old, and keeps on falling over into the water and sort of scrambling up and then falling over again. And the water's only, you know, a foot or so deep, but this kid's clearly in trouble. And he asks, you know, do you wade into the pond to save that kid, even though it'll make you late for work, it'll ruin your new suit, it'll ruin your new shoes mm. and of course everyone goes Duh? of course we would you know are you mad and then he goes well right now actually thanks to the internet mm. we can literally or certainly metaphorically see kids in trouble of 
of um, losing their lives, say, in sub-Saharan Africa through starvation, mm. for mm. example. Why? And actually, we could save their lives probably for the cost of less than a pair of shoes. Mm. Why are we not doing this? And immediately he throws up all these things. Ah, oh, well, big charities, they just take all the money and admin costs. Or mm. there's corruption, the money doesn't get to that kid. Uh, but actually, all of those defenses, all of those uh, arguments are a defense against our feeling of what you talked about mm. when you, s- you see someone in the street, which is like, I don't really want to engage with that because yeah, there's, yeah. Always, there's always going to be like tens of thousands more kids dying yeah. in sub-Saharan Africa. And this is the image we have of poverty and of wealth. So what, what our excuses give us is an opportunity not to engage with inequality. Mm. Now, inequality itself is a political stand. Certainly, there are many political systems which think inequality is the correct way for something to run. When Haile Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia, he famously, while there there was enormous famine in the north, had feasts in his palace in Addis. And when challenged about this, he said, well, that's the natural way of the world. And to be honest, for most of human history, people would have imagined that was the natural way of the world. That, you know, that exactly, that, you know, the inequality was the way the world works. Now, we've made a decision in certainly in the democratic West or the liberal West, that actually inequality is not how it should work, that redistribution is the way it should work. But what we need to do next is to get beyond the political decision and work out what's the psychological decision we have to take to get there. Now, in the book, he has an interesting proposal. Um, and this is partly why I'm telling this story. Because he, <laughs> says, he says at the beginning of the book, by the end of this book, I'd like to persuade you to give regularly, i.e. all the time, a percentage of your yeah. income to uh, some cause. Yeah. Because the motivation is incredibly powerful because, he says, you could save a life. And wouldn't it be amazing to know that you've saved a human life? Mm. And let's face it, if, you know, God forbid, out on the street here, somebody just got knocked over by a bus and we ran down and gave them CPR and saved their life, we would, by the end of today, we would feel astonishing. Mm. And, you know, I'm tr- not trying to trivialize this. It would be a great no, feeling. No, no, I get that. So he says, uh, during, through this book, I'm going to take you through all your barriers to giving away a part of your mm. income. And by the end, I'd like you to commit a certain percentage of your income and be public about it. He says, well, the huge barriers is that we think this is somehow taboo to talk about helping or generosity. So I'm yeah. going to tell you now that I read the book. It was quite a lot of years ago. And I decided to give away 10% of everything I earn. Mm. And then I, so I wrote to all the friends of mine I had in the NGO world, in the charity world, to try and work out the best way of giving away that is 10%. it called teething isn't it, isn't it there's like tithing, tithing yeah. so in the it. old days before taxation if you like yeah. well, certainly when tax tax wasn't regular the tithe you go 10 percent to the church and this yeah. helped the poor for example yeah. now we've lost that function yeah i, I chose 10 percent partly for that reason you know i mean he himself gives away i think more than 40 percent perhaps even 50 what's his name uh, peter singer there's 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 the young young guy he um, you wrote a book I forgot the name it's something like Extreme Altruism but mm-hmm. I forgot the name of a book he's a professor at Cambridge I think or a visiting or an adjunct professor and he was recently on the podcast on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast and I've heard him before because he happens to be the ex of a girl I used to work with and um, that's it so they've created this This uh, I forgot the name I'll, I'll try and put it in the yeah, show notes rings a bell, exactly. yeah, this, and so yeah, he created yeah. this movement <clears throat> with someone else so basically they donate fi- uh, it's minimum 50% of everything they earn they give mm. back to this charity and they have a rating of what are the charities that are actually the most efficient. Right, exactly. And Peter Singer does a similar thing. If you go to, uh, okay. I think he has a website t- attached to the book. The book's called The Life You Can Save. Yeah. And I think it's thelifeyoucansave.com okay. or something. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And similar exactly thing. that thing. So, the th- but the important thing for me is actually the psychological barriers to giving rather than the 
structural ones. We can do something about the structure of a big charity or yeah, whatever yeah. like that. But when I wrote to my friends and said, okay, here's, um, it's going to be 10% and it's going to be this amount a month, you know, what do you reckon? And almost everyone came back and said, look into micro lending. And now, yeah. this is, now this is a very interesting yeah. development of technology. That yeah. What's happened, as Singer points out in the book, is that with the internet, we've suddenly developed a new way of aid, if you like, that we couldn't do this before the internet was invented. But now, very easily, we can loan pretty much directly to an individual in Ghana or in Nigeria, in, yeah. and, and the money will reach them because we can wire money. Now, the, the truth is actually... Many big organizations now do this very well. The one I use is Kiva, K-I-V-A. Is that, it's not Indian... No, I'm confusing. There was a... No, you're thinking of... Uh, and I can't remember his name. But the, the, yeah, the, the guy uh, who basically launched Micro... Well, at least yeah, we, Micro... It, yeah. it, it arose initially in India and has yeah. now spread that across was the world. It, yeah. but it is controversial micro-lending because sometimes you find that people are paying massive interest rates on micro-lending. Hmm. So Kiva is a system whereby people don't pay interest at all. And you go online and there's an enormous number of people who are looking for small sums of money. And the first person I lent some money to was a woman in a village in Ghana who she sold charcoal. And she was looking for $200 so she could buy some more charcoal. So when she went out each day, she could make more of a profit, if you like. She needed, we probably would call this a seed investment or sure. something in the yeah, startup yeah. world. And uh, there's a little bit about her family. Her father, her husband had died and she was bringing up three kids by herself in this village. Now, th those are kids absolutely in danger of dying, or maybe one of them, for example, simply because she can't afford food. So enabling her to sell more charcoal would enable her to buy more food, in my reckoning. Sure. And you just click and the money gets to her. It gets to her via a, a, a charity on the ground who distributes it. She then pays it back over... 12 or 18 or 24 months interest-free. So you then lose on your money in the sense that the inflation mm, sure, is eaten yeah. away. There's no, but on the other hand, the money then comes back into your account and the and way Kiva works is you can do it again. You know? And I'm very proud that I've done this a lot now. Mm. It's been eight years, I think, since yeah. I started doing this. And I'm sure I've saved a life. Mm. And I think I can't describe... Mm. The pride I have and the awesomeness of being able to say that. I have no idea where that person is. Sure. But someone is alive who wouldn't be alive had I not done something. Mm. Now, already, you know, in both our faces, we have a kind of slight mm. about this because this is not the sort of thing you gen generally say yeah, yeah. in conversation. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's almost like the, um, there's, there's this thing about like, oh, I'm donating this, but I don't want people to know. I don't want mm. it to make it sound like I'm being... So I'm about yeah, it, right? So, so exactly. So we need to say, why are you not meant to say something so amazing? Because that you've yeah, done? so this is so. Oh, there's so many stuff in what you just said. So first of all, I remember someone always told me, give minimum ten percent of what you give to charity, save ten percent for a rainy day, put thirty percent aside for taxes, and then the rest do do what you with. You right, know, blow it out. Yeah, blow, blow it out. out. Like, I'm yeah. already doing a sum yeah. in my head like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm behind on those no, second no. two. You know? But I've never, I've never <laughs> stuck to that. But I right. mean, that was someone that basically told me, I started my business said, look, always always give back and keep some money for yourself mm. and then make sure you get 30% for taxes. Blah, blah. Um, there's, there's something about that, around the idea. So there's two things. One, I had an experience of four years working in the charity sector. It's a brutal world. Right, I forgot you the were part of this world. I was, you yeah, were yeah, part yeah. of I this left, world. Yeah, yeah. So right. I was country manager at the Movember Foundation mm. for four years. You know, raised 2.8 million euros for men's health, got 110,000 people to sign up to the website. Well, part of the team that we did that. And um, it's brutal. 
the charity dollar is brutal because you're competing in a world where everybody's trying to do good, but you're competing for the dollar. Like the, the, we, we, had, we had a study that came out. I forgot. I'm totally going to butcher this. I'm not going to state facts. But the, the, the amount of demands that people were getting, the requests for funding, for sponsoring of an individual per year went by like tripled, if it not by tenfold over the last five years. And then the average person donates a year. It was something stupid. I forgot it was like $45 or $98. One of these two. Per year, that's it. And they usually donate two or three times max. It was something stupid like that. So you look at that and you're going, wow. So we're, we're fighting for cancer, prostate cancer, mental health issues. Someone's going to be fighting for water. Someone's going to be fighting for education. Who gets to say that whose dollar is more worthy than the other? Do you know what I'm saying? It's, like mm. this, it's well, a really hard world where like all these charities are competing. Yes, you can go for like who's efficient, who the money goes. Mm. But what causes gets to say... Education's first because if you can educate, you can eradicate poverty. Yeah, but right now they're dying. If we don't feed them, they're dead tomorrow. Forget about the classroom. We need food. I guess the answer would be, on the one hand, donors get to say because they donate. Mm. However, they might need some guidance from specialists like you guys in November or whatever. Yeah. And, and they might want some help about which are urgent priorities and which are later priorities. There might almost be a, a Maslow's pyramid of needs, of mm. charity needs. I mean, I remember back in 1990-something or other, I was living in San Francisco, and I went and volunteered. It was the, the early 90s, so it was the hideous days of AIDS and HIV, and I went and volunteered for an AIDS and HIV charity who worked with homeless people in the Tenderloin, actually. And very quickly, the charity realized it was promoting safer sex. It was just doing completely the wrong thing. That these people didn't need condoms; they needed homes. Hmm. And actually, that they they realised that even though the the reduction of HIV transmission was an essential thing to do, somehow even more essential was getting people shelter because shelter gives us security and shelter gives us a, a, a psychological grounding. Yeah. Now, in a way, we as donors can make little decisions about that, and we're probably sometimes right and sometimes wrong. But I want to say. What stops us even donating $98 a year mm. to anything? Mm. And it's not usually that we can't afford $98. You know, let's face it, you know, plenty of us probably in the last three months have had at least one weekend, which is a kind of dumb a blowout. <laughs> and, and, you know, even the cab, you know, what London, yeah. London minicabs are like, you know, mm. cost, you know, £30 or yeah. something like that. It's $50. So you're yeah. halfway there. Now, in a way, what we need to look at is, as with so many of these things about the future of work, about giving, about saving lives, about inequality or distribution. The really important thing for me is to look at the psychological barriers we have to making change rather than the political barriers. Political barriers we can argue about, and you mentioned the French elections, and in a way, we, we have made, I think, in America, in Britain, and ter ho hopefully not in France, some terrifyingly dumb political decisions. And mm. that's my opinion. It's mm. not particularly my politi party political allegiance. Mm. I just think politically it's dumb what we've done. Mm. But in a way, what people are doing in the, the ballot box is expressing a psychological need and a psychological blockage or mm. protest or anger mm. or whatever it might be. And what we don't really have at the moment is the currency to describe those psychological barriers or the psychological drivers which make us act in a certain way so even though you, if you say to someone rationally could you give 98 dollars a year to make someone's life better rationally they say well of course i can because i had a blowout two months two months ago and i didn't even need the cab home or mm. something but psychologically they probably won't do it mm. because it brings us into contact with as you say guilt or should 
everyone have kind of the same amount of stuff or should there be an inequality? Yeah. Or why, one of the things I'm very confused about is why are there homeless people in London? You know, London is a fantastically rich city. Why are there homeless people in San Francisco? San Francisco is a fantastically rich mm. city. You know, th this seems just to be dumb. You know, if a Martian landed, they might ask us, you know, hang on, what are, what are, why are these people on the streets here mm. where even in my street, in I live at the Angel Islington, <laughs> you know, there are um, empty flats because they've gone on the market yeah. for £1.8 million pounds or something and right now no one's bought them. Yeah. Now, a Martian would say, you guys are crazy. You know, look, you're not looking after your species or mm. whatever it is, you know, yeah. but... We might turn around and say, well, actually, unfortunately, the reality of the world is such and such and such. You know, even Jesus said this in the Gospels, they will always be the poor. So we have to say, where, where do we lie on that, that sort of psychological spectrum? Do we want to make change? Or is sometimes are we running away from a problem which is too big to solve by actually just saying, well, that's the way of the world mm. or something? Which for me just feels it makes us impotent. But have you seen The Beach? Do you remember the scene when those Nordics go fishing and get bit by the shark? No, remind me. So basically, there's a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio goes fishing and then there's a storm and then suddenly there's a shark that comes and he okay, kills it. And okay. then he tells this story of this great legend of how he killed it. And someone says, yeah, it was a baby shark, but you wait until the mum comes back. And so there's three Nordics, I think they're Norwegian or Swedish or something. Suddenly they hear howling and screaming and they go out and they find that they've been bit Half their legs have been bit or their arms, one's dead, etc. And so what happens, do you remember the concept there are a community on the beach and they live? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And so they put them in the, in the commune, but they're shouting and they're screaming and they've got a choice. They can't go back to the mainland and they can't get a doctor. No, so they can't get a doctor over because otherwise they would know the island. Yep. They have to take them to mainland, but they won't travel on water because they're so afraid now. They don't want to go on water. Right, right. So they go, well, you're going to have to stay here then. But then it gets excruciatingly painful because they're screaming. And eventually they drag them out and they put them in the woods. And Lily Capri's like, we can't do this. We can't leave them alone. And so they all go back into the commune and keep on partying and food. And Lily Caprio is really distraught. He stays with them and they're screaming and they're shouting and they're in pain. And the reason why I bring that up is that it feels like it's a bit like how we tend to maybe treat people. We feel like, oh, if we pretend like they're not there, we pretend like this is not happening, we can continue our business as usual. But it's it's still happening. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's very important, the human capacity, to turn our eyes away from someone. Coping you know. mechanism. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism. Let's face it, there's plenty going on in the world at the moment, which is disturbing. And we as individuals, even we as powerful individuals, can't make all of those situations better. So already we're saying, well, which ones do I focus on and which ones do I not focus on? And... I think we have more autonomy over that decision than we imagine. That we tend to use platitudes for this. Ah, charity begins at home. So the big debate about overseas aid in Britain at the moment is, is really revolving around a cliche. We should really help the people in Britain run the people overseas. And that's, but you quite, see, a, that's but you quite a powerful argument. But you, know? you see that. And, you know, so I, to, cause I'm really, I want to hear what you're saying. But remember, you heard that all the time. So here's how he, here's how he gets crazy. At November, when we we're trying to raise funds, right? So we're like, okay, the funds are going back to this hospital in Paris. People locally in Southwest were like, well, in that case, I'm just going to support our local hospital here mm. because I don't want my money to go back. And it's like, yeah, but we're funding research to try and find a cure mm. that the whole world can mm. benefit from this. Not just, and it's this, and I can't blame people. I really can't because it's like, um, 
you're asking me to help someone else and we can't even help the person here. And so they then become communitarians, I don't know how you call it, like in the very kind of my tribe, mm. my tribe first, then mm. you know maybe the bigger tribe and then, then I'll f- forget about the rest. Um, and, I, and, I, and I realize what the time is. But I want to bring it back to, to what you were saying around we have, this cope, we have this capacity as a survival coping mechanism of what you want to call it of turning a blind eye or not deciding to turn away. Yeah, I mean, we have, to, we have to have that capacity to turn away because otherwise we'd be overwhelmed by the demands of the world. You know, to mm. take one single example, uh, people who currently are living in Syria and <laughs> are being bombed is a devastating piece of news. But unfortunately, it's one of probably only about probably 100 conflicts going on in the world right now where there are also people living elsewhere and being bombed. In northeast Congo at the moment, for example, there's still a civil war mm. raging and people are being brutally killed and bombed there now we can't handle all of those things so our response has to be in my mind a mature one we can't just say well i can't handle all of them so i won't handle any of them which Mm. for me is what charity begins at home says i'm not talking about your supporters who Mm. want to support their local hospital i mean the people who say i'm not going to give any help to anyone you know look after my family if you like that for me is pure selfishness Mm. Um, i believe that all of us even the poorest families in this country can afford to live on a little bit less Hmm. now but we need to then look into our minds and say well how do i make a decision about who i do help and who i don't help and this is where peter singer is really interesting because suddenly this is where the issues of psychology and ethics comes Hmm. on and you know you yourself mentioned your mother didn't give money to people on the street in case they spent it on alcohol so we have this quite common idea Hmm. that we shouldn't give money to people in the streets because they might spend it on alcohol even though we might very happily lend our mate 20 quid to get drunk, for example. So now we're already making a decision about the person on the yeah, street. Because, or the person because you almost feel like you're going to be part of the problem. You know, so I'll give you, I'll, I'm, I'm just being very honest and transparent mm. here because I think this is what this show is about anyway. But it'll be something like, okay, someone's begging in the street. So this is, this is, this is really fucked up, by the way. I'm just letting you know. But this is the rationale. It's like, oh, but if I give money then A, are they going to be buying drugs? Are they going to buy alcohol? And am I contributing to, um, this is the horrible word, but I'm looking for it, incentivize them to beg further because if they get money, then they'll keep on begging as opposed to do something about it. You know, so that's going through my mind and and I'm just going, and then, but I came to a point where I, I have to trust. I have to trust that, you know, for example, someone, some, I, the ones that gets me and I can never, it's when someone comes to look, I'm trying to get, of uh, 10 pounds, five pounds to spend a night in a shelter. You know, can you help me? I'm like, yeah, mate. And I'll give them money. Whether they, whatever, whatever that, whatever that happens after that, it's got nothing to do with me. But I, in that moment, I cannot not trust that. And there's, the, I think there's a thing about a distrust that is taking place between us and them. You know, this separation of beings between you live on the street, then you're, therefore you're different than me. And therefore, I don't trust you because you're going to buy drugs and you're on the street for, you know, whatever it is. Well, uh, you brought up lots of interesting things there. I mean, the, the trust thing is very important. How do we know how to trust someone? If you actually literally, you know, in general, how do we know whether to trust someone? It seems to be an instinctive feeling. We talked last time we spoke about artificial intelligence and whether it could deal with human feelings like empathy. You know, could a robot ever understand That's how you finished trust? off the interview, David. That's true. That's yeah. how you killed off the yeah. interview. You're like, <laughs> and they're working on that too. And they're working ah. on that too. So, you know, what is trust? You know, how do we know whether to trust someone? You know, that is it really that we trust people in our in-group and no one else, for example? So, for example, you know, if your mate is a problem drinker, is an alcoholic, for example, would you not give them 20 pounds, even though they said it was to pay the rent or to 
pay the car park or whatever mm. 20 pounds gets you a cinema ticket mm. would we trust them you know even though that would be definitely contributing to the problem mm. um i must admit i've got a bit of history here because i used to when i first moved to london i lived with a man who was alcoholic uh, in the house that i was living in and we at one point took away his money with his agreement so he could remain sober and one day he came home drunk and he stood on a street corner and borrowed and asked for 10 peas until he'd got enough to buy a bottle of whiskey and that taught me a big lesson about that. I'm a bit like your mum, for example. Mm. I'm constantly buying, not constantly, not enough, I don't think, but buying yeah. sandwiches for people. Yeah. But the interesting thing is about w how much we collude in the problem and how much we help the problem with intervention. I think mm. we can never really Love that. know. I'm not sure if I colluded in any problem with the woman in Ghana who I loaned $200 to. Uh, I think I helped the problem but maybe she's unbelievably lazy and having way too many kids and eating all the food herself and her kids are dying you know she's you know maybe she's a disaster and i'm having to trust the person who connected me with her the, the field charity on the ground or the website itself to filter that out now so the whole thing is about a line of trust but i think ultimately we have to trust ourselves to say am i proud of the decision i made even if the person i would f probably say to people even if you give money to somebody who says they're going to go to a shelter and then they go and spend it on alcohol. I think I want to say two things. First of all, is it your right to stop them sending it on alcohol? Mm. Do we have a right over yeah. what people do with the money? Yeah. And the second thing is, well, at least you trusted them. And sometimes people but, uh, but fulfill I, our trust and some people don't. Yeah, but I think that's also at the base of what the big problem is with people. So, so to use that example, it, I would rather someone said to you, look, I'm looking to buy some alcohol. Could you give me some cash? And I think as a person, you go in this righteous horse of going, oh my God, you said you're going to go for a shelter, now you're going to go for a, mm. for a beer. I'm never giving you money because you lied to me. I, you betrayed my trust. You know, you have all these kind of weird morales. Um, and then it also reminds me of um, Brené Brown. I don't know if you know. Mm. Um, she, I, went to, I, I saw a talk in London and she had this really great um, point around trusting that people are doing the best that they can. Even if we're like, I wish you were different, David. Mm. I wish you, mm. I wish you uh, showed up, uh, you know, on time. I mm. wish you whatever mm. it was, mm. and I wish you were different. And mm. so I'm angry at you because you're not doing as best as you can. And she said something. I don't know if people are doing their best that they can or not, but I know that when I believe that, I feel much better for it. Yeah, and you know what? That's the best we can do. Yeah, it's up to each of us to do the best we can, and therefore it's to it's up to each of the other people to do the best they can. It's not our business. Mm. It's not our business to make sure they're doing the best they can. Mm. It could be our business to give them a little helping hand on the way if we feel that we have assets that they could do with. Yeah, and I think that's my strong point about charity, is that almost all of us could probably lose about ten percent of our wealth without really noticing. Sure, and that's a very important thing. I mean, the if you look at the charts of income distribution in Britain. At the School of Life, for example, we have a very good class about how to relate to money. And um, one of the exercises is imagine the distribution of incomes in Britain from sort of north to ten, if you like. Where do you sit on the scale? You know, your household income. And most people uh, put themselves five, at about six. six probably. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. we we kind of aware that we're a bit over the median. Yeah. But, you know, about six. Yeah, yeah. And when you put the chart up, almost everyone is at about eight point five or nine. Wow. When you do that on global distribution. Everyone, and I'm including anyone on the dole here in Britain, is in about the top, uh, which way around is it, 99.99 yeah, percentile yeah. of the world. So then when you're talking about someone in Ghana or homeless people in San Francisco, or whatever it might be, actually we've got loads of wiggle room with our income and wealth. We just don't feel we have. And we talked about a little bit last time this, this idea that our status, and this comes back to work, comes from earning and it comes from spending, buying things, and how much we attach to 
I think we spoke about this last time, the fourth flat screen TV in the house or the fifth, <laughs> the fifth iPad or whatever yeah. it might be, that these things, these seem to be important to us. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the average donation is $98 a year. I mean, I forgot. I or that, whatever I it mean, might I be. But, you know, that, yeah. that's kind of less than an iPad. You know, really, do you need five of them? You know, do we need, and I said this, I always say this, do we need the iPhone 7 or 8 or 9? And instead, if a woman in Ghana can sell more charcoal to buy more food, for the price of, you know, let's face it, a few mini cabs on binge weekends, <laughs> isn't that a better use of our productivity and our skills as human beings? And for me, it is. And I really want to say I'm not even being self-righteous about this. Believe me, I can be self-righteous. <laughs> I, when I was at Wired magazine, I had a, a strong reputation of uh, David can't see a high horse without getting on it. <laughs> and the, many of my colleagues were going, <laughs> when, I, when I was on that one, you know, but I actually think I feel quite strongly about this. I think actually we've got an opportunity to assist or to yeah. intervene or to change the world in tiny ways, mm. and we should just seek out those opportunities yeah. and, and fulfil them. I've got a I've got a, a a little challenge for everyone listening to this. So I saw on the tube the other day there was an app that was launched to round up everything you spend to invest in a portfolio, whatever it was. Oh right. yeah, I saw that today actually. Yes, right. Yeah. So. Imagine we did the same thing, but except for investing in a portfolio, you round it up to add up all those pennies to come up with a fund that you could give to charity. Mm. So whoever's listening to this, if you are an app developer, if mm. you are a Great. business entrepreneur, Great. create this app yeah. so that we can all sign up to this yeah. and we can all know that you know if we go to the pub, we buy a pint for a three pounds or two pounds. I know how much they are. I don't go to the you pub. You haven't had a pint in a pub for quite a long I haven't, time. No. I haven't, no. <laughs> From <same>. uni. <laughs> I I thought it was about that rate until I went to a pub recently. <laughs> I can tell you it's quite a lot more. Quite a lot more. So, yeah, and then you add it up, right? Mm. So that that's one way. So, David, look, I'm looking at the time like, oh, my God, again. I could go I could go on I've, I've, I've for I so enjoy a, speaking yeah, with you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, there's a thing I want to say really quickly, which is I remember, you know, you won't hear me quoting that many times, but Tony Robbins once said this, which I thought was really said, if you don't give 10 cents to a dollar now, you'll never give a million dollars to a billion dollars. Mm. He says, no matter how little you've got now, mm. give back now because it's never going to come to a day where you're going to realize, oh, now I've got enough, now I can give back. Mm. And I think that's one big thing I'm coming away from today's conversation yeah, with you. It's very beautiful. Is, is around no matter what you've got, no matter how little you've got, mm. give a little bit back because not only may you change someone's lives, but you'll feel better for it. <laughs> I agree. And that's a lovely way to end. And I want to actually propose, while we're waiting for that app to be designed, uh, I want to suggest two things. One is... Let's stop paying for things with our cards and phones and get back to paying with cash. Mm. Partly because that reconnects us with what money is and what it can do. And secondly, because in places like Pret-a-Manger, you can put your change in a little box for mm. charity. Immediately, they hand it back to you. And you can't do that with your card. Mm. So actually, while we're waiting for the app, let's let's big up Pret-a-Manger. If you're doing that, good yeah. for them. Let's go and eat at Pret-a-Manger, pay in cash, and when they give you the coins back... Just drop it in the box. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I cannot leave without saying, I don't know if we talked about this last time or if I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I'm totally going off tangent. We could have closed that arc and I'm just going to open it very quickly. There's a study by, it's an Israeli professor. I forgot his name now. He's got a fabulous TEDx talk and he's got a great documentary on Netflix. But the bottom line is that he did studies. We're talking thousands and 80,000 people around the world. I forgot how much it was. He does this test about, he brings people in a room, multiple test question. And they have to do a test around like, you know, questions, blah, blah, blah. And then they have to self-assess themselves. And then they're basically told for every good mark you get, you get a dollar. They have 10 questions. They self-assess. 
before they go and collect the money, they put it through a shredding paper. Then they say, oh, I got six answers or seven answers, right? And they get $6, no questions asked, and they leave. The thing is, it's not a shredding paper. It just makes noise as the paper goes down, but they recuperate the exams and then they compare the how many people lied, basically, right? Okay, <laughs> so they do this fabulous exam and they say, across all culture, religion, it's about the same. We lie about the same kind of way. And then some factors change. Like, let's say we see someone that's from a different tribe than we are, that if we obviously are cheating because they stopped after two minutes, then we suddenly cheat less because we're like, we're not like them. But where it got really interesting, and I think this is where it's related to this, they did the same test, except this time you gave the answers to your results and you got chips. And then you exchanged those chips against money. Significant, like every single time that they ran this test, there was, I don't know, I don't want to say an invented percentage, but significantly higher percentage of people who lied because they could not relate what they were doing to physical cash. Because they were getting right, chips. Right, the chips were in the way. So, yeah. and he said that is why we have financial crisis that happened. That we have. That is why we have investors betting some stupid amount of money on some really high risk because we've lost this connection to money. Sure, it's just numbers on a spreadsheet. The, the investment—they're not having wheelbarrows of dollar bills. Exactly. Coming. And funny enough, actually, that's why casinos work very well, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel like real money. Yeah. You got these. Pl- well, you know, because casinos could easily allow you to put your actual money on the table. Oh It'd no. be a bit messy. Be, be, but be, the be, chips. Yeah are detached from money. I'm a big believer in, I used to work at the Financial Times in personal finance, and I'm a big believer in the principle of pay cash because I think it connects us with the worth of what we're buying and what we're doing. And actually, to come back to work, what we're earning. Yeah. And the more, that's a very good example, Dan Ariely, I think it is. That's it, yes. I think the more we separate ourselves from the actual money, the more we're in danger of losing the connection about what it means to have money, or yeah. it means to have assets, or it means to distribute. Sure, great example. I'm gonna I'm gonna close this off, David. I'm Mark, gonna a, say a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, always, thank thank you, you. so much. It's always thought provoking. There's always new. Th- I'm walking away going like shit. I've got to because I have been actually giving ten percent more or less of everything I've earned, but I've got to be more rigid about it. Um, I appreciate you for making the effort to come all the way back to our Hampstead studio. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to come here. It's a pleasure to come here. Yeah. I'm glad I've caught you just before I go to Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, look, I just I just want to sort of acknowledge you again and and thanking you for for bringing a really interesting perspective to every conversation and you're a wealth of knowledge. And that, that's the thing that I took away from our last conversation is like you're an encyclopedia of names and authors and, and theorists <laughs> and this. And it's beautiful to, to witness and, and really stimulating. So so thank you. Well, great. The world is a wonderful place and it's it's wonderful to be curious about it. I yeah. guess actually that's the treat of being human, isn't it? Yeah. I've got two last questions. Go on. I'm not going to let you away with uh, without asking two last questions. One is... If there was a, if I could give you a billboard on Piccadilly Circus and you could write down one message mm. that everyone would see when they walk mm. by, what would that message be? Oh, that's really easy for me. It's, actually, it's a kind of rule that we have at the School of Life, unofficially. We don't have any rules at the School of Life, but it's how I often open classes there with this. It's a question. Am I, are you, are we, whatever, are you living the life you want to be living or the life that other people want you to live? And it would just go up on the billboard. This is Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living, he said. It's a kind of question version of that. Am I living the life I want to be living or the life that other people want me to live? Mm. And that will provoke just thoughts about, well, yeah, these bits of my life kind of cool. Uh, I think probably in my choices over here, I'm not quite living what I want to be living. Maybe those are little changes I could make. I love that. That's that's what the unconventionalist stands for. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, What's one thing most people don't know about you? 
I'm a trained scuba dive master. I went to <laughs> I went to live in Mexico for three months a few years ago on the beach and became a, an intern in a scuba dive shop. I was 50, I think, or 49. Uh, and I was the oldest person in the company by a long way and the most junior person in the company as an intern. As the, In fact, it wasn't even called intern. It was called The Slave. And I I really enjoyed it. I, I, I love the tropics and living on the beach. Uh, my work was physical, not cerebral. Um, my my skills I had to bring to the work were completely different from what I have to bring from writing and speaking and everything. And I discovered that we all have this incredibly untapped part of ourselves through doing that. And, and I found it's absolutely fine to be at the bottom of the pile of the hierarchy. In fact, it's quite nice, Yeah, really. Um, so that's what I am. I'm a qualified scuba dive master. <laughs> that is brilliant. David, where can people uh, see you next? Are you, are you running classes? In, uh, in, in Sao Paulo for the next month or yep. so. I'm in Sao Paulo till about May the... 20th then mm -hmm. back in London again uh, on my website davidbakeronline.com there's some radio I've been making recently especially a radio program about what we just talked about yeah where, 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 where can people I mean, I'm sure you'll send me the links there are, on the show notes, everything is on my website there's okay, a section called cool. radio and you can see the programs there mostly the radio 4 programs yeah and actually I'm going to be coming back from Brazil reporting on what has happened to the Brazilian economy how did it go from the country which managed to bid for the Olympics and the World Cup to the country which is now really scratching around for its life to be honest we'll have to we'll get see. you back on the show will do it'll be a pleasure <laughs> see you next <laughs> time then. thank you Mark. Bye -bye. thank you there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as i did as always it's a genuine pleasure to sit down and spend some time with david and pick his brain and hear his thoughts and share his wisdom and wealth of knowledge when it comes down to the topics of future of work and should we be worried or not and how can we actually bring humanity more into the workplace and use work for a force for good if you want to find out how to get in touch with David, make sure to go and check out the show notes at markdrews.com forward slash 68. And we've also put all the resources that we mentioned in today's interview. They're all there for you. All you got to do is go to markdrews.com forward slash 68. Until next week, have an amazing week ahead. And I look forward to spending more time with you next week. See you then.